Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. My, my favorite part of every service is always the scripture readings and going through the Psalms. I enjoyed that to an exceptional degree. I don't know how you go through the promises of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and don't understand that to be Jesus of Nazareth. I don't think it's possible, except if darkness veils your vision but all who have eyes to see can clearly see that. Let's pray, and then we will turn to the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this Christmas day. Lord, we pray that saints would be sanctified, that sinners would be saved, and we are so happy to be with the people of God on this day to be able to celebrate this in a special way. And we praise you and we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been more than two and a half centuries since George Friedrich Handel crafted what is universally considered to be an incomparable masterpiece of composition. And it's a dangerous thing to ascribe any non-canonical work to divine inspiration in a special way. But given the lyrical and the musical content of this work and its global impact throughout the centuries, I think we safely may. And I'll give you some of this history now so that you understand what I'm speaking about. Handel's Messiah came to him in 1741, and it came by way of a three- to four-week creative flurry. I could not turn his mind off. One historian characterized the process as follows. He would literally write from morning to night. And again, he did this for three to four weeks, seemingly spurred by divine inspiration. Now, Handel's Messiah has, of course, become synonymous with Christmas. However, that was not actually the man's original intent. He originally intended for it to be performed on Easter, and that makes a lot of sense when you consider the work in its entirety. The portion that we are most familiar with is only the first part. There are actually the three. And the first portion prophesies the birth of Jesus Christ, which is obviously the part most familiar to us, and we certainly know the Hallelujah Chorus, But the second exalted his sacrifice for humanity, and the third and final portion heralded his resurrection. And while I'd encourage you to listen to all of these, it is this first portion that has in it what is germane to our study this Christmas day, and I will read to you from this now. Now, I'm going to give you a longer stretch here uh, in terms of the amount that I'm quoting than I would normally do from... Uh, any hymn or song 
but I think once I have, you'll agree that it was warranted. So I'd encourage you to stay with me throughout all of this. It is wonderful material. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked straight and the rough places plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once a little while and I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. The Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his people, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, I shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, get thee up into the high mountain. O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold you, God. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. And maintain these words in your mind as we enter into the text. But continuing, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there was the angel with him, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is the righteous Savior, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd, and he shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Come unto him, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And he will give you rest. Take his yoke upon you and learn of him, for he is meek and lowly of heart. 
and ye shall find rest unto your souls. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now generally, I would not think of reading a portion that lengthy from any given song or musical work because I would consider that robbing from the sermon. But I don't consider this to be that way because that is a sermon. As a result of its powerful music and lyrics, Handel's Messiah instantly became immensely popular the world over. One of the details in researching this a bit that I found amusing was that ladies in those days were not permitted to attend uh, showings of Handel's Messiah in the common to the day hoop skirts because if you've seen these in movies, they're very large. They took up too much space and they were always at maximum occupancy. So they had to wear something more form-fitting so that more people could fit in to hear this. Now, as to the power of the musical score, this we may only ascribe to a truly unique divine gift. And the incomparability of this work was recognized by both Bach and Beethoven. In fact, Ludwig von Beethoven, when commenting on Messiah, referred to Handel as the, quote, greatest composer that ever lived. But for as moving as the music was and still is, musical compositions are themselves moved by human experience, and this is always true. Even classical scores that have no lyrics still have a foundation in human experience. The composers had some emotion derived from some occurrence or contemplation or set of circumstances, and then they set that to music. And the greater the occurrence or subject being contemplated, well, then the greater the emotion produced by it and the greater the score that results from it. So what was the foundational occurrence and or contemplation of Handel's Messiah? It was the yoke of darkness and death broken by the promise of Isaiah which came to him by direct revelation of the Holy Spirit. Again, quoting Handel, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of course, that was Handel quoting Isaiah. As you may have gathered at this point, these words are going to be the subject of our study this Christmas Sunday, which means we will be primarily examining Isaiah 9, but we will do so with some reference to Isaiah 7, though briefly as well. So please turn to Isaiah 9 if you are not there already. However, as we get started, I'm going to take you back a bit to the end of the 8th chapter because Isaiah 9 begins with a conjunction. So we need to understand here what that joins us back to. So ever so briefly, starting in Isaiah 8, verses 19 through 22, when they, false teachers and spiritists, say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to his word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness." So in those few verses, you gain a pretty good insight into where God's people are in Isaiah 8 and where they're going to be and why 
They are consulting pagan diviners instead of God's word. And they're doing this because they're a wicked people. And therefore, because they are a wicked people, God is judging them and is going to judge them. And Isaiah is here speaking to the southern kingdom, specifically Judah, as it is also known. The kingdoms here have been divided at this point between northern and southern for about a couple centuries. Southern kingdom is currently in a state of great political unrest and uncertainty. Uh, They are trying to thread a precarious needle. On the one hand, they have the Assyrian king slash emperor Tiglath-Pileser on the march. And he has assumed that actually as a title because that was not his given name. It's a throwback to a a conquering Assyrian king from a couple centuries prior to him because he envisions himself as being the same, an emperor uh, cultivating and crafting an empire. And the choice that Tiglath-Pileser has given the southern kingdom is that they can either be a vassal state paying heavy tribute to him or they can be invaded. So that's the one hand. On the other You have the northern kingdom that is already allied with Syria, and they are trying to get Judah to form a coalition with them against Assyria. Now, ultimately, the point's going to be somewhat moot because in the end, this will take a while. They're going to be handed into Babylonian captivity. But this is the backdrop, and this is what precedes the conjunction in Isaiah 9, which we will now begin into. Verse 1, we'll exegete as we go. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, Zebulun and Naphtali are singled out because they are border towns. And what they border is Assyria and land under their control. It's not great to be a part of a nation that's being invaded, it's really not great to be on the border because you're going to be the first to fall. If you're a little bit more interior, you can relocate, you can take steps, you can get your family out of that situation, but if you're right on the edge, you're just going to get eaten up. And that is, in fact, exactly what happened, and the record of that is in Second Kings 15. But in contrast to the contempt that Zebulun and Naphtali are to be treated with, Uh, more broadly, Galilee of the Gentiles is going to be made glorious, according to the text. But in what way? How are they going to be made glorious? Well, verse 2 expounds this a bit, and as I read this, you may remember that Handel quoted this directly as well. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness, obviously the Gentiles referenced in verse 1, will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Now, darkness is what? It is clearly figurative for unbelief. And light then is clearly spiritual illumination. But when and how was this fulfilled? Well, what say you, Matthew? Indeed, to his gospel we go in verses 12 through 16 of chapter 4. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them a light dawned. That light was Jesus Christ. And it was the truth of his teaching. 
And through his life and his ministry, what follows in verse 3 and beyond is also true. Verse 3, you, Christ, shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Now, there are a few details worthy of special mention in those two verses. At first is the concept of harvest. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. Uh, harvest is a consequence of planting. If you do not plant, you will be receiving no harvest. So there's great patience involved here. You put something into the ground and you wait for the Lord ultimately to create the germination that will result in fruit. Well, the seeds of Christ's messianic ministry had been sown all the way back in Eden, as I took you to in our readings prior to this, the promise of Genesis chapter 3. And they are still here now being sown by Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Christ. And those seeds are going to germinate, and they're going to germinate, and they're going to germinate. And then they're going to burst out of the ground. As a gardener, I am familiar with the joy of seeing a seed produce a plant after one season. Sometimes you deal with biennial plants. You wait two years. But what joy must accompany the fruit of a seed sown thousands of years prior to the sprout? Or prior to the tender shoot of Jesse finally breaking the ground in Bethlehem. This was the joy of God's people in the day of Jesus. Think about Simeon. Next, notice the reference to spoil. They will be glad in your presence as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now, from what does spoil come? Spoil is not uh, the result of victory in general or success in general. Spoil is the fruit of war and having been victorious in war. So then, what is the nature of of this spoil in particular? Well, in order to know the answer to that, you first have to understand the nature of the war. And for this, look again to verses 4 and 5, and we'll start in verse 4. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. Now, first it's clear that if darkness of the Gentiles is in view, then this yoke is spiritual, though I'm sure it has natural implications as well. But this being true, their primary oppressor is the one of whom the unknown author of God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen wrote when he penned, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. So Satan is the oppressor. But now consider that reference to the battle at Midian. And that'll tell us what we still need to know about this war. The Battle of Midian is where Gideon and the 300 defeated 135,000 Midianites. You recall this situation? Keeps getting whittled down and whittled down and whittled down, and then there's divine, miraculous intervention, and they all end up turning upon each other in the chaos and in the confusion and in the darkness and doing the Israelites' work for them. Why did God demand that such a small number fight so many in his name? 
In Judges 7, 1 through 2, Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, for Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. That's not really a concept that too many generals are familiar with. We have too many soldiers for the battle to be won in the way that it ought to be. Now, if you don't recall, prior to Gideon, the nation of Israel acted wickedly and so earned the wrath of God. But through Gideon, God not only did not give them the wrath that they deserved, he instead gave them blessings. Now, what is that great Christian doctrine that is defined by not getting what you deserve and instead receiving blessings that you do not? Grace. So Midian is here invoked because as at Midian, this battle referenced in Isaiah 9 is not going to be won by the might of men. Nor, in fact, will God, as he so often does and more often does, even move through men providentially as a means primarily of securing this victory. Rather, this success is going to be won by God and it's not going to be contingent upon the effort of men at all. And here will be the result of this grace. Verse 5, For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. So why is the warrior here destroying his own weapons? Why is that happening? Why did Elisha burn his plows? Because it wasn't time to be a farmer. He had a different commission. And so it was a visceral way to acknowledge the change in direction that the Lord had taken him down. Something very similar has happened here. Soldier doesn't need arms anymore because there's no more wars to fight. It's all done. Peace on earth. Goodwill towards men. But who specifically brings this peace? Continuing in verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Now first understand clearly that son and child are not euphemisms. This is actually a human child. And by the language of the text, it cannot be anything other than this. The word for child here is yelled. It is the common word for an actual human child in Hebrew. And the word for born is also the run-of-the-mill term for birthing babies. So this is not figurative in any way. And this fact becomes very critical because as this very human child uh, is very human, he also possesses some serious non-human characteristics as well, and we'll see that later. So this child then is vera homo, truly human, and as we will see later, he is additionally vera deus, truly God. But though he can be considered more than human, and indeed far more, he cannot be considered less than human. And that's why both of these things together must be considered. Now the reader of Isaiah is certainly also intended to connect this son to the son of just two chapters uh, prior. That son has very distinct peculiarities, and so did the son of Isaiah 7. In verse 14, we read this earlier as well, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. She will call his name 
Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? As we read also earlier, it means God with us. Now, I think maybe I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that alternate explanations to Jesus have been offered for the identity of the child of Isaiah 7 and 9. Uh, There are several, but Hezekiah is chief among them. Now, in what I'm about to say, I don't want to diminish Christmas cheer with what would be regarded as an uncharitable attitude this Christmas day, but whoever abides the notion that this is Hezekiah or anyone other than Jesus is either a moral idiot, meaning that they have forsaken this obvious reality because they are in rebellion against God, or, if that's not the case, they're just an old-fashioned idiot. But one way or another, there's no way to do that without it just being absurd. And if this did refer to anybody else, I'm pretty sure that Isaiah would have just committed blasphemy, wouldn't he? Qualifications here given either violate the Shema, O Israel, our God is one, or they reveal the nature of it. O Israel, our God is one, and he exists eternally in three persons. And now you have the divine son being spoken of. Now, having said that, before we move on, we should nail down who the us is exactly. And perhaps one may assume that the us here, as in son will be given to us, is either ethnic or spiritual Israel, or both, maybe all who are of the circumcision, or all who are of the circumcision who are also circumcised of the heart, genuine believers. But that seems to be a problematic take because of the inclusion of the Gentiles back in verses 1 and 2. Later on, he shall make it glorious by way of the sea. On the other side of Jordan, Galilee, of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. So then the us is the group of whom Matthew speaks when he says this in chapter 1, verse 21 of his gospel, she will bear a son and you shall call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So this son will be born by God of a virgin, but to us, all of us, his people. All the regenerate, all the elect of the Father from every tribe and every tongue and every nation of men. Now we are all sons and daughters of our parents, but Emmanuel will be a son to his people. And this concept is critical because sons in particular carry the hope of their parents in a special way. Sons continue the family line. They are uniquely the promise of posterity. And as a son is this to his parents, this son is this to us. He is all our future hope. All our generations will come from him. And the next statement advances this truth even further. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Now let me ask you, is Jesus a political figure? Oh, you better believe he is. What else would it mean to say that he's a king? Of course. The issue in the Gospels was a matter of understanding the when of this and how exactly it was going to work out. But there is no if. Christ is king. He is king now. And he is king forever. Now, because the text returns to this matter of politics, I'm going to leave this for now and return to it later. But continuing in verse 6, and his name will be called. And I'm going to stop there. On the basis of that statement, what's coming next 
are not statements of, of being in an ontological sense. They're statements of doing that reflect being. So this is about actions and attributes. This is what names signified amongst the patriarchs. Abraham's name meant something. Father of many nations. Joshua, the Lord saves. They had names that demonstrated their actions and their purpose and how they would fulfill their purpose as given by God. And so we know here that he is called what he's about to be called because of who he is and what he does. First thing on the list then is wonderful counselor. It's interesting that it's the first on the list. What is he fundamentally? Wonderful counselor. He's a teacher. That's what that means. And this was, of course, definitional of the ministry of Jesus. The miracles that he performed were a way to reveal the authenticity of his teaching, which was about the kingdom of heaven, about the souls of men. He was first and foremost a teacher and constantly teaching. Now consider the kind of teacher that he is, according to the text. He is wonderful. Now, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said something to the effect of we shouldn't use our exceptional terms to describe common events because if we do, then those terms will cease to be exceptional. This is one of those. Wonderful is especially used sarcastically. I've used it that way many times. When you pop a tire and you pull over on the side of the road, you get out and you see what uh, the situation is and you go, wonderful. Uh, when you're a parent and you have children and you leave them alone in a room and the room was put together and it's not when you come back, it looks like a grenade has exploded in there, you may say, wonderful. So let us pause on this for a moment so that we can separate the chaff from the wheat. This is wonder in light of the quality and the caliber of his teaching. It is producing wonderment. And though we're talking about a divine person in a unique uh, category of wonder and wonderment, there are experiences that we experience that shed light on this. And the best that I could think of is a mother with her newborn child at her breast. You are studying the contours of that little baby and you are in awe. That is what this is. It is counsel so wonderful that it creates awe. In this we hear echoes of never has a man spoken as this man speaks. We hear also did our hearts not burn within us while he was speaking to us? Wonderful counselor indeed. Next Isaiah's son is mighty God. So again, probably not Hezekiah. Now this is El Gabor here. That's the title used. It is not necessarily a title as unique to God, big G, as Yahweh is. And because of this, there are certain cults that will dismiss this as being a reference to Jesus uh, as simply a God, lowercase g. Now problems with this abound. First and foremost, you've got to consider what El Gabor is doing in the text pretty clear that only God could do those things. But then also consider the reference to El Gabor in the very next chapter, Isaiah 10, 20 through 21. Now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one 
who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God, El Gabor. Who is El Gabor? He is Yahweh. They are one and the same in that text, and they are one and the same in our text. And we should also note here that mighty has a context. What, he, what is he mighty in light of? He's mighty in light of the war that he has fought, that he has won, and the outcome of his victory is peace. He is mighty to save. He is mighty to grant his people everlasting peace. Isaiah's son is also the eternal father. Now this presents a conundrum for some. It's seen as upsetting potentially the Trinitarian doctrine. How is the son the father? That sort of thing. Well, the key to understanding this is, and his name will be called. So again, this isn't a reference to Trinitarian titles. It's a reference to actions and attributes. So we know here that he is called what he is called because of who he is and what he does. It's a statement of doing, not being. In terms of being, ontologically, within the Trinity, he is the eternal son. But in terms of doing, especially that doing which is recorded in the Genesis creation account and reiterated in John 1, Hebrews 1, and Colossians 1, he is indeed an eternal father as creator. What else could he be called? And it's true spiritually as well. Is he not, in a very real sense, our Father? Of course he is. And by the way, you know, when we read in Hebrews that he's our elder brother, we don't take that in some weird way. We understand that it refers to an aspect of his doing. And next, according to Isaiah, the Son is the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. As fallen creatures, we have an uncomfortable and confusing relationship with peace. And that is that on a deeper level, we all yearn for it. We genuinely want it. Yet on a personal and political level, we thwart it. We pull apart relationships because of our own sin, friction that we create. We pull ourselves apart as societies and civilizations, all the while yearning for that which we cannot bring to be because of our own Natures, And this is one of the many contradictions that come from being created in the image of God and yet living in rebellion against that God in whose image we have been created. But deliverance is coming. There will be no more war. There will be no more soldiers. There will be no more arms. There will be no more broken relationships and no more tears over them. There will be no more enmity. Man with man, nor man with God. And I mean ever... Because of verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Did you know that God, amongst all else, is also zealous? Did you know that he has a fire in his belly? And did you further know that he is zealous for peace? He is a being who has always known peace in his own being, in Trinitarian fellowship. And he desires to bring that peace to men in a way that is called zealous. 
And did you know that it was this zeal that motivated him to send his son as a child for us all 2,000 years ago? And do you know how God gave us this gift of peace through his son who was incarnate? Well, if you don't, let me, let a better preacher than I tell you. And this again is Handel. And if you do already know this, then let Handel tell you again so that you are once more reminded of what this day should mean to we who are Christians. Now, what follows is a sampling of the second and third acts of Handel's Messiah. With this, I will close, and I will tell you this is a more lengthy sampling than I intended to give you, but it's difficult to trim the fat on something that doesn't have any fat. So I I really had a hard time cutting. I'm not giving you this lengthy of a section again out of laziness, But in this, you'll have a better exposition of verse 7 in the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom, I'm sure, than I'm capable of giving. So here is Handel once more to take us home. Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. He hid not his face from shame and spitting. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Thy rebuke hath broken his heart, He is full of heaviness. He looked for some to have pity on him, but there was no man. Neither found he any to comfort him. Behold, and see if there be any sorrow like unto his sorrow. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of thy people. He was stricken. But thou didst not leave his soul in hell. Nor didst thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Here's Psalm 24. And be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. And be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of the preachers. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Their sound is gone out into all the lands and their words unto the ends of the world. Why do the nations so furiously rage together and why do the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their yokes from us. Hallelujah! For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall take 
his stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. For now is Christ risen from the dead, the first fruits of them that sleep. Since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Beats is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. And here is the final chorus in the close of Messiah. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, and hath redeemed us to God by his blood to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing Blessing and honor, glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And all I have to add to that is Merry Christmas and Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Illyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. <laughs> 